I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Before we jump into the episode with our next featured artist on season two of the Uncertain podcast, I have my own art update. My first novel releases in October 2021. I have long benefited from the work of authors, poets, filmmakers, dancers, and painters, so I am delighted to contribute my own work to the realm that's responsible for so much life and beauty in this world. There's a lot of darkness in the world, lots to lament, lots to make us angry. During such times, I find refuge in art, films, books, poetry, music. Art can often describe how I feel in a way simple words cannot. This is the reason we're interviewing artists on a podcast dedicated to challenging the church to do better. We need artists to be a part of this conversation. Artists have a way of looking beyond what's right in front of us, of shining light from different angles and exposing places we didn't think to look. This is exactly what the film Hosea does written and directed by Ryan Daniel Dobson. When I think about what art can be, I think that in its best form, art is something that creates space. And inside that space, a person is invited. Ryan is a filmmaker based in Los Angeles, the writer and director of feature film Hosea, the founder of Revived Transformed Vintage Clothing, and producer, writer of the narrative podcast The Thicket. After studying theology in college, Ryan turned his attention to the entertainment industry with a focus on marrying theological and philosophical concepts to powerful visual storytelling. In addition to Hosea, he has written and directed several award-winning short films featured at festivals around the world. Here's the interview with Ryan Dobson. going to be a lot of, I hope there's going to be a good deal of deep, meaningful thought about how we handle uh, work, art that's produced by, and I know you've been dealing with this as well, just produced by people who are bad, you know, obviously. Yeah. What are your on. thoughts on that? I don't know. I, I'm, you know, Catherine, I, I have a hard time even really, as soon as I start to enter thought, in that, I feel like I become really aware of the trappings of my own privilege. And I think the problem with the trappings of privilege is that I recognize in myself a fear that someone would discover something about me that would negate the value of anything I've done. And and I think that even that might even be part of the reason I left full-time ministry, because I was like, if the game here is that I have to be I have to, I watched pastors in the churches I grew up in. I, I remember thinking if, if we're expecting a person to be perfect in order to appreciate the value of what they've done, then we'll never be able to appreciate what people have done because no one's perfect. And I felt that burden in myself now. So I, I wear that, but the problem is that it is deeply important for us to recognize when violence is brought into brought into a space when someone abuses another person and and we can't continue to celebrate them in the same way mm-hmm. once we recognize them as as victimizers so i don't know i don't yeah. know what do you yeah. think 
How do yeah, you watch I the positive show? I'm totally, <laughs> absolutely. And I just, yeah, there's, there's a line for sure. I have to, I have to believe that there's, there's a line that, that gets crossed and there are people who get disqualified forever, forever. I have, I have to believe that because some of this, some of this behavior is just, it's atrocious and it's not everyone for sure. And just because someone makes a mistake or repents doesn't, doesn't mean that they're disqualified just because someone makes a mistake, but there's definitely a line. And I think we just have a hard time believing that a pastor or a religious leader would ever cross that line would never go there. I'm in a position now where I'm just like, I'm trying to figure out if there's any of them that are trustworthy. <laughs> just like, if I didn't have friends that I love in ministry, I would doubt if there were people who were actually trustworthy in these positions. So that's it's, where I am. It's funny because it's somewhat related to Hosea in that I felt like I, I mean, I was mainly interested in the character of Gomer, but even with the character of, of Hosea, the way that we, we kind of imbue a character like that with all kinds of positive traits in our minds, because we, in the, in the allegorical nature of the story, this person represents God. So we sort of assume he was a good father, assume he was a good husband. Yeah. Tell me, tell me more about this. I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I mean, well, do you mean you want? Yeah, I guess I, look, we're starting now. We're starting. Now. Yeah. I, I want to hear, I want to hear about Hosea film. Tell me, yeah. Tell me about how that came about. The story came about what, what was underneath this, this story. Yeah. Well, I just, I was studying theology in college in a, in a school in Oklahoma and had, you know, I think like a lot of people, when they start into a more academic experience, especially anytime they're exploring issues of faith, they start to realize all the presuppositions that they've come to their, with which they've come to their faith. And I became very interested in exegesis and, and unpacking scripture and trying to think about how I had approached the text versus how, you know, original hearers of the text or the story would have heard it. And so I, I found myself wanting to do that with lots of different stories, but in particular, one that I found myself returning to over and over again was the story of, of Jose and Gomer, which for those, it's it's a small book, you know, and it's not one, it's not used in the lectionary. So for people who aren't a part of, you know, more evangelical churches, they don't even usually hear texts from Jose very often, but it's a, it's a 14 chapter book, the first of the minor prophets. And it's only got a little bit of, of skeletal story narrative at the beginning. And that's mostly just poetry. I say just, it's mostly beautiful poetry, but it's mostly poetry. And I had oftentimes heard this text preached on in a way where it was, it was sort of used to talk about how we just need to buckle down a little harder and be faithful. Because the idea of the story is that Hosea, this prophet has been told by God that he should go out and make this sort of allegorical choice with his life. God says to Hosea, Israel's been super unfaithful to me. Now I want you to go out and marry a prostitute because that'll be like a symbol of how Israel is to me. And, and so Hosea goes out, marries a prostitute named Gomer. And they have the, the scripture tells us that we have, they have three children together. So they're together for a while. And then it says that she leaves. It doesn't tell us why. And Hosea's heart is broken and God comes back to him and says, basically that sucks, doesn't it? Now you know how I feel <laughs> and go find her again. And then all the story tells us that he goes and he buys her and that's it. Like there, it's just these very basic details, but then it's preached on in this way where I, I remember very specifically sitting at this, in this chapel in college, I went to a Christian university where we were required to go to chapel and the preacher talking about the characters in the story 
in a way that to me, they, they became very flattened so that they could represent ideas rather than be people. Meaning Gomer took on sort of the, the mantle of representing human depravity, right? This Christian idea of like, at our core, we're bad. And, and Hosea got to take on the mantle of being like God. And I remember thinking, uh, and this kind of comes back to what you and I were discussing earlier about kind of wondering if people and if any people in ministry can really be totally trustworthy. I remember thinking about Hosea. I don't know. I mean, if she left him, maybe he was a dick. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we don't know. We don't know. And why are we just, and, and the, and well, I guess this gets the point in this sermon, the person preaching was kind of implying that the reason Gomer left was because she just liked selling her body for sex so much that she couldn't keep her pants on and had to leave this house. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a real human. Like that's not, I don't recognize that. I I would recognize a scenario where there's all kinds of pain in the home and maybe a, a form of abuse or poverty. I mean, you know, you can imagine the scenario where a person might make those decisions where what scripture says happen, happen, but it wouldn't be, you know, just for this very simplistic answer or reason that this preacher was giving. So I just found myself mulling over that more and more. And that was the original kernel that happened when I was in college. I decided not to pursue full-time ministry and instead moved out to Los Angeles to pursue filmmaking and in the entertainment industry. And that particular story just never left me. And so with, with Gomer specifically with this female character, I wanted to explore what, what would the person's circumstances have to have been like in order for the decisions that scripture says she made to make sense. And so that meant that I needed to start listening a ton to the stories, especially of women who have been in traffic situations coming through trafficking, who are currently in traffic situations, finding the common themes in those and, and then building those into a space, into a story in a way that would invite the audience to imagine along with me in a, in a more empathetic way, what those, what that context might've been like. Wow. So the final scene, spoiler people, if you haven't watched the film yet, final yeah, scene. Wait, let's just pause right here. Please <laughs> just go rent the movie and then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. Exactly. And where can you rent it, Ryan? You can, if you're in the, if you're in the, well, you can rent on iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, Google Play. It, it's a little bit different from country to country, but look on those four platforms and you can get the movie there. And it's just called Hosea. It's just called Hosea, H-O-S-E-A. All right, fantastic. So pause, yeah, pause the pause the <laughs> podcast and go watch the film. But so the final scene, tell me about the final scene when she says, I am good. Tell me about that. There were a few things that were important to me about the end of the movie that relate to what we were just talking about, which is that I think it's problematic when we take we, meaning people of faith, Christians especially, but I think this is true in all faith traditions, when we take stories, and again, we make them two-dimensional in order for them to do something for us, we want to be able to convey a truth. And so we package that truth up in a really kind of white bread, simple way so that we can stick it in our pocket or devour it and kind of move on to our Mm -hmm. lunch appointment. And the, the reason I think that's problematic is because that's not what life is like, right? So then when, when a person hears a story inside a faith space and recognizes the, the complexity of their own lives, the way that their own life is not at all like the story they just heard, 
there's a series of things that can happen to them. One is that they can feel guilty that they're doing something wrong. Another is that they will not experience the healing that the story was meant to bring about because they can't see the commonality between themselves and the people in the story. So, you know, I, I always think about how, you know, we, we tell these stories, the miracles that Jesus performed, but we, we, we don't often recognize the people who were fed at the feeding of the 5,000 probably were still hungry the next morning. Like they woke up craving a breakfast burrito. Like the miracle wasn't eternal. There was a, there was life after the, the miraculous moment. And so I think movies suffer from a similar kind of problem in that while movies come in all different shapes and sizes and do different things, oftentimes we really want a movie to be sort of packaged up with a bright bow at the end. So we can, again, sort of put it in our pocket and walk away to our lunch appointment. And that's not how life operates. So I wanted the end of the movie to ask people to imagine these characters moving on from this point in the same way that I would hope that they could allow the story to engage with them as they move on from this point. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I watched, so I watched it twice. And the first time I watched it, like thinking of the story Hosea. And then the second time I watched it, I'm like, just get Hosea out of my mind. Like I'm not yeah. gonna think of Hosea, the, the story Hosea. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna watch it as a film. And I'll say that when I just watched it as a film, I enjoyed it so much more. Oh, that's interesting. I think that that kind of exposed like this, like these preconceived things that we're told about the story and and realizing it's been so long since I've studied that book but just like realizing the things that I thought it was supposed to be and symbolize and how that just it just made me really uncomfortable because it just wasn't it wasn't what I was taught and then the just watching it as a story and just as a you know a, a human husband a human wife you know just this very human story and then just like why why would the bible be so different why have we set this up on the, you know that it's going to be so different than normal life well i think this is why i love uh these kinds of conversations and, and other conversations i've been able to have around the film because i i would say that i think i hope in some ways, the film reveals, rather than and seeing the difference between the film and the biblical story, people start to, to sort of see the lines of commonality, even though, I mean, you know, I'll be the first to say this is not a, this is not a retelling of the biblical story. <laughs> it's modern for, for if anybody's made it this far into the podcast and didn't go rent the movie, it's a modern day retelling set in Oklahoma. And instead of following this, the male character in this sort of patriarchal story, it follows the female character of Gomer. But, you know, for example, in that last scene, I think what people expect based on how the story of Hosea is typically used is this scene where the woman in our movie, it's Kate, sort of realizes that really all she needed all along was just to be loved super hard, you know, and like to really like the love of a good man was kind of what she needed and now she's better. But when you take the book of Hosea in the context of the arc of the story of God, that's not what's happening. Like the book of Hosea represents a really painful time in Israel's history when things are not going well and continue to not go well after the book of Hosea. In fact, so not well that God decides to completely approach humanity in a different way, right? And I think that if, if we're using, if people come to the movie and, and sort of feel like the, the movie 
didn't satisfy them in the way that they wanted it to, because it wasn't doing the things that they sort of want the biblical book to do. I think maybe that's to a degree because we're not talking about even the biblical book quite in the wholeness and the context that it should be. I think that the biblical book has less to do with, you know, Gomer or Israel sort of understanding that they just need to ratchet down and experience God's faithfulness and like try harder, pray harder at the altar, Catherine. That's right. Come down, cry, pray, and go back changed. Like if you just try harder, that that is not the message of Hosea. The message of Hosea is that God is deeply vulnerable, like, and, and God's heart is breaking. Now, my task in the movie is not the same as the book, but, you know, we certainly were trying to kind of weave some of those ideas into the story in a, in a, in a different way because it's a modern day movie, but uh, similar kinds of concepts. What made you decide to call it Hosea? Because I, I felt like why well, this conversation is a great example. If we called it something else, then the connection to the biblical book would be an interesting sort of factoid that might be a part of cocktail conversation between people rather than central to thinking about what the story is inviting people to think about. And I, the, the two producers on the film, Averill Speaks and Suzanne Watson, were really the filmmaking team together. Averill and Suzanne, I had so many conversations about this over the years because, you know, we wanted to your earlier point, we wanted to make a movie that one who is not a person of faith, who doesn't think of themselves as a Christian or religious at all, could still come and enjoy the movie just because it's a good movie about a woman who's experiencing, you know, a period of time in her life. But I, I think of there, there, this has happened with some Shakespeare films where they go out and sort of remake, you know, much ado about nothing or, or whatever. And like people afterwards are like, did you know that 10 things I hate about you is actually, and it's like, it's fun to kind of know that, but it's not central to your experience about, about like, oh, this is like an, this is incredible that they, and you like engage with the story in a completely different way. So we, we kept the name Hosea to try and keep that level of engagement. And, and I think for the film is a, is a film that works broadly, but is primarily has the highest level of effect on a group of people who care about that tier of conversation who are wanting to engage in, in that way. You know, and I'm sorry, one disclaimer that I should probably say real fast is that talking about the movie is a little bit odd because unlike maybe an author talking about a book or a poet or a painter talking about their work, I, I am part of a filmmaking team, film, right? Film is a collaborative art form. And more, more people worked on this film who would not consider themselves people of faith than who did people who worked on it, who would, who would consider themselves people of faith. So you know, I, when I'm talking about those things, I'm talking about my perspective, Ryan's perspective, but the, I, I'm not capable of making this movie on my own, number one. And even if I could figure out a way to finagle a movie on my own, it wouldn't be as beautiful as this one is because of all the other colors and layers that are brought to it by people who are approaching it with a completely different worldview. So I'm not, I'm speaking about my perspective, but not necessarily the perspective of the film itself. Okay. No, that's awesome. No, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Do you, I would love to hear how you got into this. You've mentioned a little bit about deciding not to do pursue ministry and yeah. Tell me a little bit about your creative origin story. So I was in college studying theology, planning to be a pastor and struggling 
I mean, I had some form of a faith crisis early on in college, but later on, really what I was struggling with is it was not so much what I believed as much as feeling like I wasn't sure I could work in the institution of the church. During college, I was working part-time at a church and I just, I sort of felt like I was seeing behind the curtain at the Wizard of Oz and going like, oh no, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Your people can't see this, Catherine, but you're shaking your head in a way that shows that you clearly know that. And it wasn't and so I, I was, yeah, I was really struggling with like, is this, is this really what I want to do? I feel like I'm going to be miserable. And during that time had started acting, was doing some Shakespeare there in Oklahoma and decided to move to Los Angeles. But while I was still in Oklahoma, had this, I would call it a form of a transcendent experience seeing a film. So I, have you ever seen the movie Big Fish? I have. It was a long time ago. Right. And, and it's not a movie that is all things to all people. But it was a time in my life when I was really trying to struggle with the themes that the movie struggles, which was, which are kind of questions about truth. Like for those who haven't seen the film, it's basically kind of asking the question, if I told you I caught a fish and I reached my arms as far as they, they would reach and said the fish was this big, but it wasn't really, at what point does my story stop being truthful? And I think when you come as a person who has an infantile faith, and you start to move into a mature faith, you have to start asking yourself very similar questions about what is small T truthfulness? What is capital T truthfulness? What is the truth that I'm basing my, my life upon, especially when we think about story and narrative and, and all that. And as that relates to m- me and my family relationships and all this other kind of stuff. And, and that's really baked into the movie, this movie, Big Fish. So at the time I was dating or engaged to my wife and I remember the timeline exactly, but we went and saw Big Fish at the theater, at a theater there in Oklahoma City. And Catherine, I, I was so, I wept so deeply. I was so inconsolable that I could not drive that. We got in the car and I started driving and I had to pull over because it was not safe for me to drive the car. This movie had stuck its finger through my ribs into my chest and it pushed on a painful spot in me that I couldn't, even now, my goodness, I'm tearing up now. Excuse me. I was so powerfully affected by that film because it, it just saw something in me. I felt like it, it, it had given me the opportunity to sort of go, yes, that is the thing that I'm feeling. That is the thing that I'm experiencing. And I, and I remember kind of around this time going, if I had the opportunity to create, to be a part of creating something that could do, that could make someone else feel what I felt, that could create that space for someone else, the way that I stepped into that space, I want that. I want that. And so that was kind of part of what led me into pursuing the entertainment industry. Now that's a very long road. I pursued acting initially, had very like a sub-moderate success with it. And it started finding that I had more success with writing and directing and, and just sort of started to ask the question of, okay, God, what do you, what are the tools that you've given me? What are the things you've put on my heart? And around that time was in a small group with with my friend Suzanne Watson and come to find out she had been thinking some similar things specifically about this story, Hosea. And I said, you want to go make a movie together? And she very um, naively said yes, which I don't know now if she would, if she would still say yes, because it's a long, long, long from like that conversation. That conversation was eight years ago. Wow. You can either, you can make a movie fast if you have money. If you don't make if you don't have a lot of money, you got to make it slow, um, especially if you want it to be 
you know, if you want it to be beautiful, you got to take your time. So yeah, it was a very slow process, but that's, uh, that was the first steps to the first outline of the first script. And we shot it about two years ago now. And it's a, you know, it's a slow process of editing and going through the, you know, the world of getting it out, but yeah, so that's it. What I love about your story is it just, it just so coincides with, with what I'm trying to do with like the podcast and the nonprofit and the journey of just being in a space and, and, and really needing an opportunity to tell the truth. And then that led you to art. I think that that's awesome. And it, and it, are you, is, is that because you feel like it was so clear to you that the church wasn't providing that space? I can't say at this point that the church doesn't ever. And I just think about the, so the main thing that we're doing is studying spiritual abuse and providing resources for spiritual, spiritual abuse from the church. And there are theologians and practitioners and mental health workers who are studying and developing materials around this because it's a pretty new concept idea that this exists and and they're doing great work but something else I'm just feeling this need for something else Mm. and I think it's in art and I'm just yeah I'm just encountering people artists so many artists who've had very painful painful experiences in the church in the institution of church and just felt like they couldn't uh, be honest and they couldn't tell the truth. And that's yeah. not just for artists. That's for anyone. Right. And and so I think art is just so needed. And I think it's going to be very instrumental in leading to healing and calling out these institutions that are protecting abusers, promoting abusive environments, and then not caring for people who have been abused. I just think that that's this, this missing piece of the story. So this is an experiment. Yeah. (laughs) These stories, like collecting these stories of artists and these experiences of, of something that we would call not real, like a movie or a book being this powerful means of conveying truth, potentially even more powerful than a sermon. Well, you know, it's interesting hearing you talk about the the kind of spiritual abuse that happens in, in churches. And I think my, my understanding of the terminology is probably a little novice, but it makes me think about as I was working on this, the story and thinking about this particular book, recognizing the ways that the book of Hosea and the story oftentimes is you used to do things like victim blaming or even justify forms of spousal abuse. But specifically what was coming to mind is the victim blaming. I I remember hearing someone talk about how the problem with our terminology, and this is just a specific example, but to give people kind of an idea of what I'm talking about here. When we use the term prostitute, we, we oftentimes are thinking of that word in a way that implies total autonomy, right? right? That, that a person who's a prostitute can just, they're selling their body for sex and it, any point they could wake up in the morning and just decide to stop doing that. It completely misunderstands the systems of coercion, exploitation, the power structures that put a person in that space. It also completely misunderstands when when you actually work with trafficking organizations that a huge number, a majority of people who are, who are 
in a space where someone might call them a prostitute, enter that as a minor. They are a trafficked victim. And so, you know, when we then take this story, this biblical story, and we use it in a way that kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, kind of implies that all you need to do is just grit your teeth and try harder to not do the thing you're not supposed to do. It does. It, it blames the victim. It blames a person who is in a dark space that it's their fault. And that, that relational exchange between a person in power, say, who's preaching on a text and a person sitting listening, listening to it, that happens broadly, right? Not just about Hosea, not just about uh, you know prostitution or our unfaithfulness in a relationship. That's happening broadly in how we use stories from a pulpit because of the nature of that interaction, that danger is constantly present. So I, I think the work you're doing is deeply valuable. And in, in some way, you know, we're just kind of over on our side, just kind of chipping away at a similar problem. <laughs> this is why I'm like, I'm getting, I'm realizing when I'm interviewing like experts on like, like mental health or whatever, I, lo- I love it. It's great. I learned so much, but when I'm like sitting with the artists and like talking, I just feel so, it's just not clinical anymore. You know, it just mm-hmm. feels, it feels more, more real. And for me being starting out in ministry and loving it, like Mm -hmm. loving it, being very gifted at it. And then there's this whole other side of me that just wasn't accepted. That just wasn't a part. Mm. I wasn't that part of my story just wasn't welcome in Mm. these church spaces. That has nothing to do with why I left ministry, but (laughs) it's just a reality. And yet I think artists are going to be a huge part of calling the church out and also creating spaces for healing and my creative my creativity has been a huge part of my healing process from abuse and spiritual abuse and so yeah I think that that's that's kind of what we're do you mean when when you're saying that that part of you wasn't as as accepted in the church do you mean specifically the artistic part of you yeah so I I need to see if I can find it real fast have you read uh, this art and faith it's Mako Fujimura's new book I'll need more books like this so so I am not even, I'm not even a third of the way in, but I have to find this quote for you real fast. So he's talking about, Fujimar's t- talking about Christians need or, or sort of a desire for art to serve a utilitarian function that post industrial revolution, we, we really di- we are sort of distrust of art because we want all things to sort of be efficient and productive and utilitarian for us, which is also something I've been very affected by Flannery O'Connor's writing. And she talks a lot about that, right? About like people are frustrated with her writing with her novels because they sort of want to get to the end of it and know what the motto is or what the theme is. So they can just walk away feeling satisfied. Yeah. Like I got it. So I'm sorry to read you a quote here, but I just really like this quote. He wrote, imagination like art has often been seen as suspect by some Christians who perceive the art world as an assault upon traditional values. These expectations of art are largely driven by fear that art will lead us away from quote unquote truth into an anarchic, anarchic freedom of expression. Yet after many decades of the church proclaiming quote unquote truth, we are no closer as a culture to truth and beauty now than we were a century ago. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. I think... I, when I read that, one of the things I was thinking about is I have, I have friends who have pursued, who would think of themselves as people of faith, who might even call themselves Christian, who pursued, pursued music. And I remember hearing them talk about things like, you know, trying to get on with a label or a manager. And have you ever heard them use the term JPMs? Mm-hmm. 
the idea that in order to sort of make it in the Christian music scene, your music needs to have enough Jesus per minutes, JPMs. And, you know, that's the, the idea is like, like, we're not going to be able to trust your art unless we're sure that it's doing a thing, which I would call proselytizing, right? Which is like just uh, an art that's really meant as a form of propaganda. We don't call it propaganda because we agree with it, but like, it's really just affirming a thing we already believe rather than being art. And so the church is like not in this post-industrial world is not really sure what to do with that art. But in this book, Fujimura's in inviting us to think about God as artists. So uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Oh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to order it on Amazon as soon as we're done. <laughs> I need another art, art book. So, so question that I was going to ask you that you've kind of alluded to a little bit, but where have you experienced or seen art as healing? Yeah, well, definitely, you know, Big Fish was an example of that in my life. I, I mean, there, there've been a handful of films that have done that for me, but there are other forms of art that I've experienced that way too. I, <laughs> when, when we first were out here in LA, I was, I was trying to get into SAG, which is the Screen Actors Guild. And at that time, I don't even know exactly how it operates now, but at that time, one of the ways that you could try to get in was through this process of doing extra work, which is this very demeaning. It's like going into a giant institution and working the mail room and sort of trying to slowly work your way up, except there's no clear ladder and it's nefarious and awful. And anyway, I was doing extra work on a show called Scrubs for a long time. And the show Scrubs was filmed in an old defunct hospital up in the Valley here in Los Angeles. And it, we had this kind of whole floor where the extras hung out on these very cushy couches and we were always in hospital scrubs. It was this very comfortable setting. And I, but I was bored a lot. I decided, you know, what, I'm going to read like a classic book that I've always meant to, to have read. And I, I just haven't. So I sat down and I decided to read the unabridged version of Les Miserables. And so it took me a long time because that is a long book. 1500 pages or something. Yeah. But a similar kind of experience, I would say to Big Fish where that as a, as a work of art, and, and probably just because I, I believe so completely in the ability of story to, to transform us, that particular story about a man sort of experiencing this one early grace moment, then, you know, being invited as a reader, as an audience member to walk through that person's life and see the way that that, that grace moment is resilient and blooms and affects a community in a, in a deeply profound way. I just found so moving. So, but you know, there's lots of little ones too. I I'm every once in a while I'll get fixated on a song. My song right now, I know this is not a new song, but Sia's song alive for some reason, like the other day I found myself just sitting in the car. She has this refrain at the end of the song uh where she says i think she says i'm still breathing it fe felt to me very like pandemic i'm still breathing i'm still breathing it was like this is so profound i'm just sitting in the car not ready to go back inside the house yet just crying but i know what about you i is this a question you have answered on your own podcast what what art forms have have yeah. reached in your chest and pushed on that soft spot yeah oh my gosh so much theater is like my like the ecstasy of live theater and certain shows lemas as i've seen probably six times live just the energy that's in this live audience with storytelling not necessarily healing as much as like like i i will say i can i've probably the times that i felt most like i'm worshiping 
mm-hmm. is in that space. Yeah. And then writing, writing has always been just even as a kid has been an escape. And the exercise so, of that art. Yeah. 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 It has been a way of expressing and, and, and realizing more just as I've gotten older and I've written, I started writing novels when I was 19. And then just as my novels have changed and how it's kind of followed my my healing journey, the way oh, wow. that I write and the, the way that my characters show up and they're, they're it's like they're alive and mm. they, just, they just come, they just come out. And then just that, and then that, the incarnational aspect of that, of just like this belief that these characters have their own agendas, you know, and they do their thing and I can control them. But if I do, then the story is forced and it has changed the way that I see God, just the the act of creation. Didn't get that out of the Bible. And so this idea of it leading, it leading you to things that are not true. Like, no, but that's so perfect. I mean, (laughs) you are, you are in the Imago Dei, you are creating as the creator created. That is power, power. And I just, I, I think the if art, when I think about what art can be to me, just personally, I think that at its, in its best form, art is, is something that creates space and, and inside that space, a person is invited, right? And, and, and the person then can experience something about themselves, something about the other, something about the divine empathy, all those things tied together. And, and part of, you know, the reason I perceive that is probably based in, you know, some Moltmann Trinitarian theology about the way that God as creator is creating space for the other in an, in a moment of total vulnerability is, is, is opening God's self up to the damage of the other. It's what a mother is doing is literally creating space inside her body for the creation of the other that art then in, in, you know, in, again, my experience of its purest form, like you're talking about, you're creating a character that then kind of has this being of its own and and you are asked to not over control that to sort of allow for it to exist to engage in the creation that's awesome that's beautiful and powerful that's exactly what like god is you know it's not like here's the prescribed rules and i'm just trying to make everyone follow these prescribed rules it's this it's a relationship you know it's a living breathing relationship and when your your original question was about healing then when i think about the, the times as it relates to the movie that I feel like I've seen that healing happening and it's been the most kind of affirming, satisfying thing to stand and be beside is, is watching or being with someone after they've seen the film and it's clear that they've had that kind of experience. Mm. Um, that, you know, not, you know, some, sometimes that's been because, you know, everything from someone acknowledging a form of abuse in their life that somehow the movie gave them the tools to talk about that. There was one screening in at a, at a film festival in Oklahoma that we went to where, you know, afterwards there's a Q and a, and, and someone came up afterwards and, and said, thank you. But then that person kind of hung around. And I noticed as we were having conversations, that they were still standing in the back of the theater and afterwards everyone had left. And this woman came up again, just tears running down her face. And and said it it gave me a way to talk about something that had happened and you know that doesn't that doesn't certainly is not going to happen to everyone who watched the movie but that was so uh fulfilling to me to see that the movie had again created that space for her to be there be inside that space and move in the direction of healing not snap her fingers and be healed in the moment but 
I think, you know, start, start down some path of healing. And if we get to, if, if as artists, as you, as a writer, uh, you know, this podcast is a form of art. If, if we get to engage in someone else's process of healing, I don't oh. know that we can ask her anything better. No, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, <laughs> I have to have like, I have to create space after these. Cause I've just got to like take it in a process. Yeah. Anything, any other thoughts that come up for you or almost at the end of time? So anything. Oh man. Oh, see, I don't open mic. I don't do art. Catherine <laughs> art, art. artists need parameters. I need, I need borders on this picture frame. I don't know. You know, I guess I I'm, I'm so fully just kind of speaking from my own perspective again, not, not, as a representative of the film here, but when when I think about these topics that you and I are discussing, it makes me wish that the community that I consider myself a part of, meaning the, the church, Big C, I wish we did a better job of listening and, and were less concerned with preaching and prescribing. And I think that if, maybe even to, go, to get a little bit granular, if, if people like pastors were asked to think of themselves more like artists, rather than like you being in a position where you sort of felt like that part of you wasn't accepted. If pastors were, were thinking of themselves more like artists, where there was more of just the sense of my job is to listen and create and make space and less of a job to tell and explain and delineate and kind of that, that, that motion of being at top moving downward that I'm doing with my hand that people in a podcast can't see. I, I just, I think that the church would be in a healthier space and I'm hopeful because people are having these conversations. You are having them with other people. I'm getting to be, you know, in the periphery of them because of the film. So I am hopeful, but I, I think the church needs to continue to aggressively move in that direction. Yeah, this is this is fantastic. Thank you so so much. I just I want to I want to keep talking to you for hours and hours and hours. Do you have a like a website or something that has like your bio or anything on it that you can uh, Yeah, well it's on so our production company is called Small Group Films. So smallgroupfilms.com has my information on it and the okay. the film has its own website joseafilm.com. People want to find me on Instagram, it's Ryan D Dobson. I don't know if you know this, but Dr. James Dobson from Focus on the Family. His son's name is Ryan Dobson. So I had to use my middle initial. I'm really sorry if anyone has made it all the way into this podcast <laughs> thinking that I am the son of James Dobson. So people are gonna be like, what? I listened to this whole thing. Are you kidding me? Something that people do today. Well, not so much. I mean, I lived in Colorado, which is where, you know, Focus on the Family is based. And so it was a thing that happened to me more often. And for a while they lived out here in California, went to a Nazarene church in Pasadena, but it is a little problematic. I had to differentiate myself. So, so can I say, you know, it's part of the, the cordial nicety of a podcast is for me to say to you, thanks for having me, but I want to tell you why it matters. It really, really matters to me. I, the, one of the real complexities about releasing a film in the middle of a pandemic is that you don't get the theater experience of getting to take the movie out into the world and have these conversations. And to me, that's like, you know, it's like you do all the work to make the Thanksgiving meal with the goal of eventually sitting down at the table and enjoying it with people. So that experience has been truncated. And so this is a deep joy to get to talk about this. These are the conversations I've been waiting to have. Today is actually my birthday. And I was what? like, yeah, I today it's crazy, right? I turned 40 today. Today's my 40th birthday. But it was like, this is what I want to be doing on my birthday. Thank you. Uh, I, I want 
these, this is like, this matters to me. If I am given the gift of being able to participate in this kind of creative imagination, moving out into the world, what else could I want? So mm-hmm. I'm very thankful to have been on your podcast. Thank you for watching the film twice. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Who does that? So anyway, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, so, so grateful. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.